In July 1974, in the remote dunes of Provincetown on Cape Cod in the state of Massachusetts, one of the most enduring and gruesome unsolved crimes of the 20th century occurred. The nude body of a young woman was found mutilated in a ghastly way, her hands missing, her head nearly severed, some teeth pulled out, all in the hopes of concealing her identity. For nearly 50 years, this mission was accomplished. But now in 2022, she has been identified. This special true crime miniseries podcast will dive deeper into the story of the Lady of the Dunes, also known as Ruth Marie Terry, the documentary that helped push forth her identification, the book that includes so much more information surrounding the case and the documentary, as well as the new revelations from the fall of 2022 and what it means for the documentary, the book, the Terry family, the potential killer or killers, and Provincetown and Cape Cod as a whole. I am Christopher Setterland, and this is the Finding the Lady of the Dunes podcast series. Welcome in. This is a special four-part mini-series starting off exclusively on theladyofthedunes.com. It is in conjunction with the Lady of the Dunes documentary, the Searching for the Lady of the Dunes book written by myself, and it is hoped that this podcast series will give you as much information as we can give when it comes to the case in general. I have divided this podcast up into four parts. The first part, this one right here, is the basics of the case, the facts that I was able to cobble together through newspaper articles, police reports, through chatting with Frank Durant, the producer of the Lady of the Dunes documentary, and his interviews with those who were there at the time, some who have intimate knowledge of the case. This will be followed up by part two, which will focus on the Lady of the Dunes documentary, producer Frank Durant, his work that went into the documentary, some of the incredible stories from the research, the interviews, the on-site filming, some of the roadblocks he faced in getting the documentary made and getting just some basic answers about the case. Part three will focus on the Searching for the Lady of the Dunes book that I have written, some of the information that is in the book that is not in the documentary, some of the interesting theories about the killer or killers, and stories surrounding people that were seen as interesting leads as far as the true identity of the Lady of the Dunes. And finally, part four will focus on the revelations from Halloween 2022, the identification of the Lady of the Dunes as Ruth Marie Terry, new information that came out about her, what this means going forward for the documentary, for the book, for the Terry family, and kind of bringing everything full circle to present day. Right here is part one of this mini-series where I'm going to share as much of the facts as I can about the Lady of the Dunes murder, the investigation that followed, and kind of some of the roadblocks and dead ends that made it seem like the Lady of the Dunes would never be identified. So let's jump right into it.
on the hot afternoon of Friday, July 26th, 1974, a woman's body was found in the dunes roughly a mile east of the Race Point Ranger Station in Provincetown, Massachusetts on Cape Cod. A young girl named Leslie Metcalf had been chasing a dog when the dog stopped and began barking at something. And when the girl caught up to the dog, she saw what she thought was initially a deer laying in a pile of pine needles, some sand, surrounded by scrub pine trees. It didn't take too long for young Leslie to realize that this was not a deer. It was, in fact, a human body. And the body was in an advanced state of decomposition from sitting in the hot July sun for potentially up to a few weeks. Leslie found her mother, and the two of them went to find somebody in authority to bring back to the scene. The first such authority to get there was park ranger James Hankins. He was quoted in a local newspaper interview saying that the scene was ghastly. The body in the scrub pines was determined to be female, anywhere between 20 and 40 years old, roughly five foot six and a half inches tall, and 145 pounds. She had long auburn or reddish blonde hair tied in a ponytail with a rubber elastic. Her nude body was lying face down on half of a light green, heavy cotton beach blanket with her head rested on a pair of folded blue jeans and a blue bandana nearby. Upon closer inspection, the scene was even more gruesome than you could imagine. The woman's hands had been removed, with one arm removed closer to the elbow, which is presumably to preclude fingerprint identification and other distinguishing markings that could have been on that forearm. Although the exact means of death might not be able to be identified, it seems like it was blunt force trauma that crushed the left side of her skull. In addition, the young woman's head was nearly severed from her body with an instrument that was possibly similar to a military entrenching tool, although no weapon was found at the scene. Park Ranger Hankins was quoted in a Boston newspaper saying there was no sign of a struggle and even the grounds and sand around where the body was found looked like they hadn't been disturbed. Initial coroner's reports had her death occurring anywhere from 10 days to 3 weeks before the discovery. Any of you familiar with Cape Cod summers, which can be quite hot and humid, can just think back and imagine something being left out in the hot beach sand for upwards of possibly 3 weeks, and imagining what that would do to a body. A simple crime scene photo is available, you can find it on Wikipedia, of the body lying on its side facing away from the camera towards the patch of scrub pines. It's hard to tell from the photo since it's black and white, but people said that her skin had the appearance of a rotting black banana peel. Once the initial discovery was made and the police were alerted and the body was removed from the sand... It seemed like almost immediately there were stumbling blocks, like the investigation was going through mud. The attempts to identify the woman were unsuccessful at the time. 
in a Boston newspaper article that was nearly five months after the Lady of the Dunes was found, there were very few leads. Two sets of footprints had been found nearby, as well as a set of tire tracks located about 50 feet from the body. But there had yet to be any suspects that were seen as case breakers. And this was definitely not due to a lack of effort from the local police, specifically Police Chief James Meads, who basically made it his life's mission to try to solve this case. And sadly, Police Chief Meads died in 2011 without seeing any resolution to this case. With the woman unable to be identified, and thus no family, no history, no story to be known... She was given the simple nickname of the Lady of the Dunes. And with no family or hometown where her body could be sent for a proper burial, she was buried at St. Peter's Cemetery in Provincetown on October 19, 1974. She was given a simple granite marker that stated, Unidentified female body found Race Point Dunes, July 26th, 1974. The body of the Lady of the Dunes was found in an area not far from some of the remote dune shacks located in an area called the Province Lands. There are a total of 19 shacks that are built out there, many of them more than a century old, and some of them passed down in families to generations. Maybe not quite as much today, But back half a century ago, it was very much a tight-knit community where all the families knew each other, would go out there in the summer. It was a vacation within a vacation on Cape Cod. So the discovery of such a savage murder within the area of those dune shacks shocked the residents and kind of shattered the illusion of the little oasis out there in the dunes. The thing is... Those of you that are familiar with the Dune Shacks or those of you that have been out there know that it is inhospitable terrain to walk. Soft sand, rolling dunes, marshy areas that tend to flood in the summer. The idea of a body being out there in that state would have been seen as unbelievable before that July day. Once the Lady of the Dunes had been found and been removed, it did not take long for word to spread into town. Cape Cod was and still is in many ways a very tight-knit community, and it's seen as a vacation destination, a paradise by many. So the news of this murder spread quickly across Cape Cod, throughout Massachusetts, New England, and the country. As previously stated, despite the best efforts of Provincetown Police Chief James Meads, the Lady of the Dunes could not be identified. And that made all of these questions more pertinent, just popping up. Who was she? Why was she killed? Who killed her? And how did she end up so deep in those dunes? As a kid growing up on Cape Cod, as I did, familiar with this story... I will tell you that the often peddled motive to why she was out there was that it was a lover's quarrel, and that was why the sand wasn't disturbed, was that she was not expecting to be attacked. But the answers came slowly, if at all. As a little sidetrack, in order to better understand 
the shock of the Lady of the Dunes case, it's important to go back to Cape Cod in the early 1970s. The year-round population on Cape Cod in 1970 was 96,656. For reference, in 2020, it was 228,996, so more than two and a half times. Back then, it was a time when the hippie generation was still strong, bell-bottoms, Volkswagen Beetles, free love, and a more transient nature with some of that generation where they just went from place to place exploring. It's an admirable quality to have and one that I envy at times to pack up a car with some belongings and just drive to see what the country has to offer you. But that moving place to place with no one really knowing where you are, at least family-wise at times, that can lead to something like the Lady of the Dunes where a person ends up in a place where they are not from and nobody knows them and nobody knows where to find their family. In the late 60s, early 70s, Cape Cod was a hippie's paradise. You talk about a place where you could go and get lost. Still to this day, the Cape Cod National Seashore, it's more than 44,000 acres of mostly open land, and it was the same back then 50 years ago. Miles and miles of open beach, a lot of it with nobody around. It was common back then for people to just sleep on the beach. No fear, and it still felt safer, like you could just close your eyes on the beach, go to sleep, and there was nothing that was going to harm you, which is interesting to think about because only a few years before the Lady of the Dunes, Tony Costa went on his murder spree in the town of Truro. But Tony Costa is another story for another podcast. As previously stated, the Jane Doe was given the appropriate nickname of the Lady of the Dunes. For 48 years, her identity remained unknown. There had been extensive dental work done, and obviously many different composites done of her face. And these evolved over time. For many years, the popular theory was that the Lady of the Dunes was in fact a woman named Rory Jean Kessinger. Kessinger was a young criminal. She was part of a gun-running and drug-smuggling group that had been able to elude capture from authorities in Alaska, Texas, Kansas, and California. In May 1973, Kessinger was finally caught in Pembroke, Massachusetts. She was able to procure an officer's gun during a scuffle, but was unable to use it before being cuffed. Kessinger was taken to Plymouth County Jail. On May 26, 1973, while awaiting her trial and likely a lengthy jail sentence, Kessinger used a smuggled hacksaw to cut through the bars of her cell. She then rappelled down the wall using bedsheets and escaped in a waiting getaway car. It was literally like something out of a movie. And upon her escape, Kessinger has never been seen again. Kessinger was not connected to the Lady of the Dunes until 1990. Former Provincetown detective Warren Tobias was of the belief that Kessinger was, in fact, the unidentified female body found in the dunes. She did match the body found in age range and most physical features. Tobias said in an interview with the Provincetown Banner in 1995 that he thought Kessinger was murdered by accomplices that feared she might turn snitch 
and that her body was subsequently dumped in the dunes. The Lady of the Dunes' body was exhumed three different times, in 1980 and 2013, but the second time, in 2000, was when she was exhumed in the hopes of using DNA technology to identify her. A sample had been taken from Rory Kessinger's mother for comparison, and the results seemed to rule out Kessinger as the Lady of the Dunes, at least according to those who did the testing and saw the results. An interesting side note coming out of the fact that the Lady of the Dunes has been identified as Ruth Marie Terry now shines light back on Rory Jean Kessinger. This brings it back to 1973 and the fact that she has not been seen since then. And it does lead to curiosity as to what happened to her. Was she in fact murdered by accomplices but just left somewhere else in this country? Or is she still alive? She was 24 when she was arrested in 1973. That would make her approximately 73 years old today. So it is highly possible that she eluded capture for all these years and is still alive somewhere in the world. But for a long time, even leading up to 2022, the story was the people that did the testing of the DNA and saw the results said it didn't look like it was Rory Jean Kessinger, but it always fell on that, well, how many people saw the results and how many did the testing? And could they have been told to keep it quiet if it was her? We now know that wasn't the case, but that was another popular theory. In May 2010, new facial recognition software allowed forensic experts from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and the Smithsonian Institute to create a composite of the Lady of the Dunes face again in the hopes of her being identified. Provincetown Police Chief at the time, Jeff Duran, brought the Lady of the Dunes skull down to Washington, D.C., where the new 3D model was made. And these composites of her face are easily found online. I believe there's five or six of them. Despite that new composite image, it would be another 12 years before she was identified. Sadly, unsolved murders are not that uncommon in the United States. According to the FBI's Uniformed Crime Report data, as of the year 2020, there were 250,000 current unsolved murders in the United States. That number is estimated to grow by roughly 6,000 each year. Some of the most infamous unsolved murders and murderers include the Black Dahlia, John Benet Ramsey, the Zodiac Killer, and Jack the Ripper over in England. For those that live with an unsolved murder or a missing person, it must be so frustrating and just psychologically torturing to not have the answers. Throughout the end of the 20th century, there was only so much that could be done to identify somebody. Without hands for fingerprinting, with dental records proving inconclusive, it seemed as though all the police could do was wait for the killer to slip up. In the decades since the Lady of the Dunes was found, there have been potential suspects, some that seemed feasible, others that seemed convenient, some that seemed like pie in the sky. 
Serial killer Haddon Clark once confessed to killing the Lady of the Dunes. He was also diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic and his story would change repeatedly. That will be an in-depth part of parts two and three of the this podcast series. There was the talk of it somehow being connected to Whitey Bulger. And again, in parts two and three, you'll see that Whitey Bulger has a deep connection to Provincetown in the 1970s, but it's more convenience and pie in the sky that Bulger, because he was in Provincetown and an infamous mobster, just happened to be involved in the Lady of the Dunes murder. The talk of it being a lover's quarrel that turned violent definitely doesn't hold water when you realize where the body was found and how ghastly mutilated it was. There was talk at the time and sense that it could have been a rogue fisherman because they would know how to fillet up a body much like a fish or because of the transient nature of Cape Cod, Provincetown, the hippie culture at the time that it could have been somebody that just came into town, did the deed, and left. That was a big thing about the Lady of the Dunes' discovery, was that it was obvious from the start it was not somebody from Provincetown. Because as I said, Cape Cod is a small, close-knit community, still to this day in some ways. So word would have spread quickly that somebody from town was missing, and that never occurred. The thought was that the Lady of the Dunes was somebody from somewhere else, either they're working in the summer or vacationing. July is a hugely popular month for tourists to come down. She could have been a college girl down for the summer, met somebody who ended up being sketchy and ended up in the dunes. One thing that seems to be agreed on, at least by locals and maybe some in the authorities, I'm not sure, is that whoever was the killer or an accomplice to it had to have intimate knowledge of the access roads to the dune shacks. Because if you're trying to drive a vehicle out to the dune shacks and you don't know how to navigate those roads, you're going to be stuck and stranded. And God help you if you're trying to leave a body out there and you get stuck. So either the killer knew all about how to navigate those roads or they had a driver that knew how to navigate those roads. But we're getting more into opinion, conjecture, theories. I wanted episode one of this podcast miniseries to be as close to just the facts as I could make it. But working so closely with Frank Durant on the documentary, on the book, having access to all of his notes, interviews that he did, Knowing what I know, it's hard to keep it as just the facts when some of the facts are not accurate. Like I said, that initial report about the lover's quarrel, that's not accurate. At least in the sense that they were out there messing around on a beach towel and a fight broke out. But that just about wraps up part one of this four-part series as we look at the Lady of the Dunes murder mystery the documentary, the book, and now the identification of Ruth Marie Terry. For more information on the Lady of the Dunes projects, check out obviously theladyofthedunes.com. You might even be there right now listening to this. There you can access the documentary if you want to order your own copy of the documentary. 
Check out the link in the description of the podcast or visit oldies.com. Search for the Lady of the Dunes. I will put a link there. For more information on Searching for the Lady of the Dunes, my book, depending on when you are listening to this, you can either donate to the crowdfunding at Kickstarter, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com, or if this is far enough in the future, you can order your own copy of the book. I'll have links to all of that on theladyofthedunes.com. That is kind of the one stop for all information about the case and the projects I have been associated with in conjunction with the case. And if you have any information about Ruth Marie Terry, formerly known as the Lady of the Dunes, anything to do with her life, the potential murder suspects, go to fbi.gov. You can leave anonymous tips at 1-800-CALL-FBI. That's one 800 225 Five three two four, or you can call the Massachusetts State Police at one eight hundred Capture. That's Capture with a K. One eight hundred five two seven eight eight seven three, or to submit tips online, go to tips.fbi.gov or msptips at pol.state.ma.us. Again, all of these links and phone numbers and such will be available to find easily on theladyofthedunes.com. Don't worry about jotting it all down. But that wraps up the first part of this four-part series. Thank you so much for your interest, for tuning in, for checking out theladyofthedunes.com. If you have checked out the documentary, let us know what you think. I have been Christopher Setterland, and I will be back for part two of The Lady of the Dunes podcast miniseries that will deal with the Lady of the Dunes documentary. Hello and welcome back into the special Lady of the Dunes podcast miniseries hosted by me, Christopher Sutherland. I'm also the host of the In My Footsteps podcast. And by now, you obviously know that I wrote the book Searching for the Lady of the Dunes, which details the case through the lens of the Lady of the Dunes documentary produced by Frank Duran. If you haven't listened to episode one yet, I would recommend going back and checking that one out first as it deals with the basic facts of the case. I did the very best I could to keep it strictly fact. Episode 2, though, right here, is going to deal with the Lady of the Dunes documentary itself. This is going to focus mostly on Frank Durant's actual documentary, What Appears on the Screen. Episode 3, which deals with my book, is going to dive way deeper into all of the other evidence, stories, theories, etc. that kind of surround the documentary. When I came aboard for the book, preliminary filming of the documentary had already wrapped. And I will tell you not to tease too much, but there was so much that came after I came aboard. So you'll definitely want to tune in to episode three. As far as Frank and the Lady of the Dunes documentary, we've got to rewind about three years to when he was working on his previous project before The Lady of the Dunes, which is a project on Henry David Thoreau. 
if you are not aware of who Henry David Thoreau is, he's a very famous author who was connected to Cape Cod through a book he wrote of the same name. He made several journeys down to Cape Cod in the mid-19th century, and they included walking the entirety of the Great Beach. And that basically extends from Coast Guard Beach in East Ham all the way to Race Point in Provincetown. Frank spent five months working on the Thoreau documentary, and that included several trips down to Cape Cod, even walking the Great Beach himself. As he interviewed people for the Thoreau documentary, he was wondering aloud what his next project would be. His hope was to do some sort of Cape Cod murder mystery series. And it was when somebody mentioned to him the Lady of the Dunes. And he, despite summering on Cape Cod in the town of Dennis when he was growing up for many years, he didn't know what the Lady of the Dunes was. So he paid it no mind the first time and even the second time. But the third time that somebody brought up that he should do a documentary on the Lady of the Dunes murder mystery, that was when he knew that this was more than coincidence. In the beginning of working on the documentary, he did what most people would do if they were unfamiliar with the subject and just began researching every newspaper article, clip from the news, television news, YouTube videos, and getting the overarching facts of the case, which pretty much is what I chronicled in episode one of this miniseries. Even before he really got serious about the documentary, it was already front and center in his mind, the question why. Why hadn't this case been solved? Why hadn't this woman been identified? You're talking well over four decades at that point. Frank also wanted to approach it from a different way. He didn't want to go down the same path that all of these other reporters, interviewers, content creators had gone down. So Frank knew the best way to get information that no one else had was to speak to those people that had intimate knowledge about the case in Cape Cod at the time. Because through all of his research, he was having a hard time finding people that had boots on the ground in Provincetown in the late 60s, early 70s, which there was kind of a reason for that we'll get into in a few minutes. When doing his research, the first name that really stuck out to him was Chief James Meads. I mentioned him in episode one, but in short, he was the Provincetown police chief for more than two decades, and he worked extensively on the Lady of the Dunes case. Chief Meads passed away more than a decade ago, so as far as Frank finding him to interview, it was impossible. He did find something just as good, and that was Chief Meads' sister. She became the linchpin. She opened the floodgates for other people to come forward to want to speak with Frank. At first, she was hesitant, because I can only guess that... Others that came before Frank looking to research the Lady of the Dunes were possibly less than reputable or less than ethical characters. But from the beginning, Frank came into the Lady of the Dunes documentary with no agenda except for wanting to know why the case hadn't been solved in nearly 50 years. He was not looking to exploit the victim, the town, law enforcement, anybody that had been associated with this case over its 40 plus year span and that sincerity came across to chief meads's sister and it opened the floodgates to people like chief meads's two sons 
who spoke with Frank quite a bit and even agreed to be in the documentary. And this, I believe, lowered the guard of a lot of other locals when Jimmy and Michael Meads agreed to be in the documentary. It showed that Frank was someone that could be trusted. And that led to others like Dennis Minsky, Steve DeRoche, Jeanette de Beauvoir, Dr. Gerard Kinahan, DMD, other locals that agreed to be interviewed, some not on camera for the documentary, but those I just named were in the actual film. And each and every one of them give their own knowledge and opinion of the Lady of the Dunes and Cape Cod at the time. As I said in episode one, it was a different place back 50 years ago. Despite him getting some help from people that knew Chief Meads' sister, Frank was met with some resistance when he was doing his due diligence. That included contacting law enforcement, looking for some answers, contacting local newspapers to try to get some press about the case. The documentary, yes, as well, but to kind of put the case back on the front burner. The vast majority of law enforcement either refused to speak on the record or refused to speak at all. That included a lot of hang-up phone calls, some people telling Frank that he was chasing ghosts, others telling him he needed to just leave this case alone and walk away. There was a part of the Provincetown and Cape Cod in general community that wanted to let the story rest despite it having no answer and no conclusion. And that could be simple and innocent and innocuous reasons. Or it could be that people involved with the case, with the murder, still live in Provincetown. It should be mentioned that around the same time that Frank began the documentary process, research, setting up interviews... There was another Lady of the Dunes documentary project that was trying to get off the ground. And this one had a few bigger names attached to it, which meant they were looking for a big money deal to produce and then distribute the documentary. One of those men that was involved with that other documentary was an author named Peter Manzo. He wrote a book that perfectly encapsulated Provincetown during the 70s called P-Town. Art, Sex, and Money on the Outer Cape. Frank had several conversations with him, which included Manzo telling him he needed to read that book to get a better idea of what Cape Cod was like back then. Manzo ended up passing away in April of 2021, and the Lady of the Dunes project that he was involved in seems to have died with him. Also around that same time, the beginning of 2021, The popular American horror story franchise television show was filming in Provincetown. So it is highly possible that the people there, the locals, were getting a little bit weary of people making films in their little town. Regardless of that, Frank continued to make new contacts and using some of his old ones to get deeper behind the scenes. He started uncovering stuff that may not have been common knowledge. Some were rumors and innuendo of potential missing evidence or mishandled evidence. So due to the fact that Frank is just a filmmaker, not a private investigator or any sort of law enforcement, he decided to hire his own set of private investigators. From the National PI Services in New Hampshire, Frank Santon and Sue Smith, they are both also in the documentary. 
the term malfeasance kept coming up quite a bit. It's not mentioned as much in the documentary, that word, but the idea that not that something was intentionally screwed up, but that accidentally something happened that might have contributed to the case kind of going cold for so long. So Frank had a pretty good crew behind the scenes getting him all the information that he would find useful to start the documentary off. But he knew that at some point he was going to have to go to Provincetown to actually be there to see the places that people were telling him about and get the vibe for himself. And it was absolutely a mixed bag when he showed up. Some of the longtime locals that Chief Jimmy Meads' sister had put Frank in touch with told him some stories about the Wild West, the dying days of the Wild West in Provincetown in the 1970s. It was a wake-up call for me first hearing about it from Frank. Some of these things that I didn't think were possible on Cape Cod, but we'll get more into those in a few minutes. When Frank got to Provincetown, some of these insiders that he knew told him that he was the talk of the town, that everybody knew why he and his crew were there, what they were looking for, what they were doing. Some thought it was great. It was about time that the Lady of the Dunes had the light shined back on it. Others were not thrilled. They wanted it left alone. And God forbid some outsider that wasn't even from Cape Cod come down with his film crew and start poking around. Frank said at times... The paranoia overwhelmed him where he would look at people walking up and down Commercial Street, wondering what they knew or if they knew him. Anyone that stared too long, cars that slowed down to look at him. He said he never feared for his life, but there were plenty of times that he felt so uncomfortable, like he was a bird in a cage just being watched by everyone. But he persevered. He set up his interviews at the Provincetown Theater and spent three full days there filming, to the point that he had more than 50 hours worth of footage. It was after he had all of this footage that people started telling him he had enough for a book and that he should look for an author to come aboard and write because there was so much stuff and he wanted his documentary to be 90 minutes. And he did his Google research and found me, and that is how we met, but we'll get more into that in episode three. After doing his interviews, a few major landmarks began to stand out as being important in relation to the case and Provincetown at the time in the 1970s. That was the Crown and Anchor Hotel and Bar on Commercial Street, St. Peter's Cemetery, the dunes themselves and the dune shacks that reside out there, and away from Provincetown, a place called the Combat Zone in Boston which was a small, I believe, two-block area that back in the 60s through the 80s was filled with sex workers, strip clubs, peep shows. Sometimes it was safe and fun. Other times people got robbed, murdered, stabbed. And it's not exactly that Provincetown and the combat zone of Boston were connected like a pipeline, but it is a fact that famed Boston mobster Whitey Bulger spent time in Provincetown. This was stated on the record by then Crown and Anchor owner Stan Sorrentino in a court case in the early 1980s. So even if Whitey Bulger had absolutely nothing at all to do with the Lady of the Dunes, he still was in Provincetown during those times. One interesting note that came from Frank's interviews 
with a fire lieutenant from southeastern Massachusetts came from the crime scene photo that you can obtain. It's right on Wikipedia. That due to the way that the body was arranged, the lack of blood, the way the feet were crossed over, that is highly, highly likely that the Lady of the Dunes, Ruth Marie Terry, was not murdered in the Dunes. She was murdered somewhere else and then brought out there. It's a drop site, not a murder site. A handful of people said the same thing to Frank when they saw the photo, that she was not murdered there. Then the talk goes to, well, where was she killed? Where is that location? Is there any evidence at that location that could tie the killer to her? And it also comes down to how she got out into the dunes. Was there a driver that knew the area? Frank walked out to the drop site a couple of times in the process of this documentary. So he knows the rough terrain about walking out there. He also was driven out to a dune shack owned by a woman named Mildred Champlin. She and her husband, Nathaniel, owned the Mission Bell dune shack. Nathaniel's passed on, but Mildred is in her early 90s. They've owned that shack for 70 years. Frank interviewed her. She was out there when the body was found and has vivid memories of it and made it a point to tell Frank that whoever drove out there to drop the body off had to know the area because there are certain parts of these access roads where you'll get stuck. So then you start to think about locals that rented out their dune shacks, locals that had the off-road vehicles that drove out there straight past the dune shacks to the outer parts of Race Point Beach. Ruth Marie Terry could have been murdered by someone not from Cape Cod or New England, but it seems like in order for her to get out to where she was, somebody with knowledge locally would have had to have helped out it in some way. Then we circle back to the theories of the Lady of the Dunes' identity, which people from back in the 70s all the way up until the documentary was filmed agreed that she was not local. She was possibly transient. She could have been a summer college girl there working or someone there visiting one of the dune shacks, possibly renting one of the dune shacks. Everyone agreed that she was not local because when the body was found, there was no whispers that somebody had gone missing around Provincetown or the Outer Cape. And when we get into episode four and the identification of Ruth Marie Terry, you will see that some of these theories of the identity ended up becoming true. One thing the documentary focused on is the possibility of sex work and sex trafficking, specifically with the connection to the combat zone in Boston and the idea that Ruth Marie Terry had one of her forearms removed in addition to just the hand. It led people to think, it led Frank to think that there had to be some sort of marking there. And in the documentary, they interview a woman that survived sex trafficking, and she said she was basically branded by her owner. So it was thought that maybe the Lady of the Dunes had some kind of a marking, tattoo, a barcode. Another interesting road that the documentary takes that Frank did for his research was the consulting with five different psychic mediums. Jimmy Meads Jr. had told Frank that his dad had consulted a psychic when working on the Lady of the Dunes case. And Frank basically was of the mindset, if it was good enough for Chief Meads, it's good enough for me. 
and some fascinating information came out surrounding Stephen the Medium who communicates with the spirits and he does this amazing thing he does called his notes. He went to Race Point Beach and sat and just allowed the Lady of the Dunes to communicate with him and he just wrote down whatever she wanted him to write, what she wanted the people to know. And there are some interesting points surrounding the circumstances that led to her death. Because despite her being identified, we still don't know the circumstances that led to her death. In Stephen's note, which I literally have in my hand, the Lady of the Dunes mentions days before her death, seeing a blueprint of something, possibly a building, and that there was going to be an extensive robbery to take place perpetrated by people that she was associated with. Her killer was a man, likely someone she was involved with, And he got aggravated when she would drink because she would talk too much. At first, this man tried to give her some pills for an overdose. She refused that. So then she was hit in the head, knocked out, and never regained consciousness. She mentioned this man being mentally unstable, bipolar, possibly schizophrenic. That he lost his child, possibly a son, and was never the same. And his name started with a J or a G. Not to skip ahead to episode four, Ruth Marie Terry's third husband was named Guy Muldaven. Guy with a G. And this killer that's name started with a J or a G had assistance covering up the murder and keeping it unsolved. There is also a fabulous scene in the documentary of something called a table tipping between two other mediums, Susan Ahern, who is the Cape Cod happy medium, and Joe Petrie of Heartfelt Angel Connections. I don't know how to explain it without it sounding disrespectful, and I don't mean it that way, but it's almost as if Joe and Susan have a conversation surrounding the Lady of the Dunes where they find out information about her, like they're putting together her life story. I can tell you when they came up with her birth date, they determined it as September 6th, Ruth Marie Terry's birthday is September 8th. They also mentioned her having many different nicknames. And if you look at her photos in the FBI poster, each one she seems to look a little different. So she was likely a chameleon. And besides being born in Tennessee and ending her life in Massachusetts, Ruth Marie Terry also had connections to California and Michigan and Nevada. And there's a span of about a decade of her life that is totally unknown about right now. So some of these other things that were in the table tipping with Susan and Joe or in Steven's note, there may be more of these things that could come to light in the future weeks and months that turn out to be true. Things like her having many different aliases, names like Lauren and Anna, but there'll be more to dive into about that when I talk about the book in episode three. The resolution of this case came down to forensic genetic DNA. In the documentary, Dr. Claire Glynn of the University of New Haven talked about how it was easier than ever to solve these cold cases using forensic DNA. A big sticking point, though, was the fact that the DNA Doe Project from California had offered three times to run the DNA of the Lady of the Dunes including in 2021, and they were turned down all three times. So think about that for a moment. 
that even in 2021, when this documentary was being filmed, the DNA Doe Project was turned down to do testing on the DNA of the skull from Ruth Marie Terry. And you start to think what changed in the time since then where suddenly law enforcement did the DNA testing. Well, I can tell you that it is this documentary, whether directly or indirectly, through the documentary being out there or through the questions and interviews that Frank did leading up to it, he was specifically told by one of his law enforcement connections that his documentary, without a shadow of a doubt, played a part in pushing the Lady of the Dunes case back to the forefront and getting Ruth Marie Terry identified. It's hard to talk about the documentary and not mention the Haddon Clark connection. If you're not familiar with him, I'm going to do a much deeper dive into him in episode 3. But I'll just say that Haddon Clark had deep connections to Cape Cod. His grandparents owned a house in Wellfleet, and he was there. He was in Provincetown that summer when the Lady of the Dunes was murdered. At different times, he said he did it. He said he was there when it happened. He said he saw her body after. He said he had no idea who she was. He was diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic, and his story changes all the time. But the crazy thing is that one of Frank's contacts told him to get in touch with a man named Ed Tarney, who was law enforcement that worked on the Haddon Clark case has been kind of like a handler of his for more than two decades down in Maryland, where he is currently in jail for life for two murders. Tarney told Frank that the best thing to do would be to ask Haddon Clark himself if he had anything to do with the Lady of the Dunes murder. So he did. And he ended up with, I believe it's seven different letters of correspondence from this convicted serial killer. They're mentioned a little bit in the documentary. They are far more prevalent in the book as I transcribe them word for word so you can get a look into the madness of a serial killer. This documentary and subsequently the book became like a spider web. At the epicenter was the Lady of the Dunes herself, now Ruth Marie Terry. But as soon as you start to pull away from the center, you see all of these other things in the spiderweb. Tony Costa and his victims, Whitey Bulger, Haddon Clark, the Combat Zone, Provincetown itself. I remember doing a little bit of an adventure with Frank last year on Halloween 2021 that I'll talk more about in episode three. But I made the connection that the Lady of the Dunes case and the spider web was a lot like the maze of fire roads that are in the Truro woods. Indulge me a little bit with my writer's brain. But with these fire roads, there are many different ways into the same area. So this late 60s, early 70s Provincetown, there are many ways to get to that spot, whether it's through Ruth Marie Terry or Tony Costa or Whitey Bulger or Haddon Clark, they're all different routes to get to the same area. And just because the Lady of the Dunes was the epicenter of Frank's documentary, she could be more of a sidecar in other works about these other names I mentioned. It is a fascinating look into this interweaving of all of these different infamous cases and people 
in an area that I have called a vacation destination on my In My Footsteps podcast for a hundred episodes. In the end, when it came down to it, a lot of people told Frank that this was a documentary that needed to be made, this case needed to be solved, and Frank was doing something important. And he and I have said that to each other many times, that the documentary and afterwards the book, it was something important because we wanted to give the Lady of the Dunes her name back. Frank even jokes that even though his law enforcement sources told him that his documentary helped push this case forward, he knows that he'll never get any sort of credit for it, and he doesn't want any credit for it. He set out not to exploit Ruth Marie Terry or the case or the town, and he has succeeded. Hell, when we got DVD copies of the documentary, he was going around giving them as donations to libraries. He's not looking to profit from the documentary. He might be looking to make his money back, but it was no cash grab. All in all, though, Provincetown ended up being good to Frank. For all the detractors that told him to walk away, there were many more that were cooperative, that wanted to be interviewed, people that donated rooms for his crew in hotels in the town. And Frank returned it in kind. When he did the premieres of the documentary at Cape Cinema in Dennis and the Provincetown Theater, it was free. He just wanted it to be seen. He wanted the Lady of the Dunes in the front of everyone's mind again. If you see the documentary or if you have seen it, you've noticed at the very beginning that Frank has dedicated it to Sidney Monzon. She was one of the victims of Tony Costa. And she became kind of a symbol to him of the darker side of Cape Cod at the time. Those people that wanted the case of the Lady of the Dunes to remain dead and buried. He formed this connection with Sydney and her sad story. Just being so young and having a rough life, at least what Frank told me. And such a sad young ending. that She sort of mirrored the Lady of the Dunes, at least the mythos of her, before we knew most of her actual story as Ruth Marie Terry. As with a lot of stuff I've said, I will dive deeper into it in part three when I talk about Searching for the Lady of the Dunes, the book, which it's like the documentary is the tip of the iceberg and the book is the rest of what's underwater. I have said pretty much since day one that I met Frank that this project, it's been like living in a movie. And I'll explain a lot more of that in episode three, why I feel that way. But as I said, check out all of the links that are on theladyofthedunes.com. Ways to watch the documentary, buy the documentary, connect with some of the people that were associated with it. Depending on when you're listening to this, you can either help crowdfund the book or now buy the book. And to anyone out there who helped keep the Lady of the Dunes name alive or help to push the case forward from me and from Frank and the rest of us associated with these projects, we thank you. So go and check out episode three of the Lady of the Dunes podcast miniseries, which will focus on my book. And until then, I have been Christopher Setterland. Thank you for listening and good night. Welcome back in to this special Lady of the Dunes podcast miniseries. I am Christopher Setterland. This is part three of four 
part one focused on the basics of the Lady of the Dunes murder case. Part two focused on the documentary itself. And part three is going to focus on the book that I am writing, that I have written. Please, if you have not listened to the first two parts, I would definitely recommend going back and listening to those before listening to part three. They all kind of flow one into the next. What we're going to do with this episode is talk a little bit about myself, my writing, how I came aboard this book, the process of writing it, and also some of the things that are highlighted in the book that there was no room for in the documentary or came out after the documentary was actually done. As I said at the end of part two, the documentary is like the tip of the iceberg and the book is the rest of the iceberg underwater that you don't see. So let's dive right in. A little about my background if you're not sure of who I am. So I'm a 12th generation Cape Codder. That's kind of my tagline when I talk about my writing. My family goes back. It's the Doan family. Deacon John Doan, who helped to settle the town of East Ham, Massachusetts. He is my ninth great grandfather. So I have deep connections to Cape Cod. And growing up in the 1980s, the Lady of the Dunes case was still relatively fresh. So I was quite familiar with it. As of the time of recording this podcast, I have seven published books, three through Schiffer Publishing. They are all entitled In My Footsteps. They are Traveler's Guides to Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket. I have a trilogy of Cape Cod history books through the history press of Arcadia Publishing, Historic Restaurants of Cape Cod, Cape Cod Nights, which is nightlife, nightclubs and bars, and iconic hotels and motels of Cape Cod. And the newest one is through the Font Hill Publishing of Arcadia Publishing, kind of a smaller side branch. It's a Cape Cod photography book, Photographer's America, Cape Cod Beyond the Dunes. I also have a blog, the In My Footsteps podcast blog at blogger.com. And I mention that because I've written lots of Cape Cod and New England history articles. I became interested in Cape Cod history in college. So that led to me writing about basic Cape Cod history, some mysteries and unknown, some true crime. This is all coming together as to how I got involved in the Lady of the Dunes documentary. We'll flash back to late May of 2021. Out of the blue, I got a random message through Facebook asking me if I would like to talk about the Lady of the Dunes murder mystery. Despite having a pretty public presence with all of these books and articles and my social media, I'm still wary of just chatting with anyone that comes into my DMs. So I said to Frank, I said, I don't think I'm the foremost expert. You might want to check with other people, police, historians, and such. He was not feeling that. I think he already had, and they hadn't really helped him much. So he started describing to me what he was doing with the documentary, and that he was looking for somebody to write the book based around the documentary and the information that it has found. And Frank said he had Googled Cape Cod authors, and I came up. This is where the books and the history articles and such paid off for me. We finally agreed a week or so later to actually meet in person. Frank was coming down to the Cape to meet with a reporter 
I believe, in Truro and also meet with one of the higher-ups at the Cape Cod National Seashore. So on the way back, he wanted to meet up with me. And so I said, you know, in I live in Yarmouth. It's not that far off the highway. So I said, we should meet at this Dunkin' Donuts, grab a coffee and just chat. He could give me his pitch about the book. I got a heads up, went to the Dunkin' Donuts ahead of time. I noticed that still due to the COVID pandemic, they weren't having indoor seating. So I call Frank and I tell him we can't go in the Dunkin' Donuts, but not far away, there's a parking lot for the bike path so we could meet there. And he told me later that he immediately had red flags where this guy he'd never met was changing the place where they were going to meet to somewhere way more secluded. And it was a misty, foggy day. So when he showed up at the parking lot, I was there with a black hoodie on and trying to keep my head cool. So I definitely looked sketchy. But we chatted for like an hour. Frank's main thing was he knew there was enough stuff that he had been researching to do a proper book and a good book, a true crime book. But because this lady of the Dunes project was so important to him, he wanted to make sure that I was all in. He couldn't risk a year from now having me say, "Ah, I'm not going to do this anymore. And now he's way behind. But I assured him I was all in. He gave me his email. And what began after that was the process of me just starting to ask him questions. Some of them big ones, like what places were important to the case, potential suspects, people that he had interviewed. Others were mundane, asking him how he felt certain days and all the little minute details that might come up. Years ago, I wrote a series of articles for Cape Cod Life magazine called The Shape of the Cape that have to do with erosion and shoreline change. And the then editor of the magazine, a man named Matt Gill, he would send me these questions with my rough drafts of articles. And it would be these questions that they would aggravate me at the time because he wanted details and specifics. Instead of saying, for example, a pond was large, he would say how large. It needed to be acres or square miles. And the reason for this was so that the reader, any reader could read the article and not have to stop and Google anything. And you give them as much information as possible so they can paint the picture in their own mind. And I say that because I joke that it aggravated me at the time, but now I use that as part of my writing process. Getting as much information in detail as possible, thinking that I'm going to be sending the copy of the book to Matt Gill so he won't write me any questions. I knew right away that I wanted to do this book Because like I said, 12th generation Cape Cotter, familiar with the Lady of the Dunes case, and Frank's pitch sold me. He said from the beginning, his motive was to give the Lady of the Dunes her name back. He didn't want to exploit her, exploit the case, exploit Provincetown or Cape Cod. That wasn't why he was there. And he didn't want any sort of recognition or fame or anything from the documentary or the book. In fact, when I recommended that we write the book kind of from his perspective since all of this happened because of his work. He wasn't even sure if he wanted to be a character. So we kind of compromised where instead of him being Frank Durant in the book, he has sort of an alter ego, Victor Franco, but he needed to be front and center. 
because obviously the documentary does not happen without Frank. The book does not happen without Frank, so he has to be there. It's all about his hard work, his interviews, the journey, his roadblocks he faced trying to get any information he could. All in all, Frank ended up with more than 50 hours of footage that he shot for the documentary that had to get pared down to 90 minutes. So that included a lot of leads that they didn't follow, that didn't fit the documentary, a lot of interviews that didn't get used. And lucky me for the book, I had access to all of that. And there's a lot of really good stuff, fascinating, captivating stuff that didn't get into the documentary. I have 85 pages worth of notes just from questions I asked Frank through emails and just through chatting on the phone and meeting up. And I'm going to go through some important points from the book, but I'm going to try to obviously not give you everything the book has because the whole point is to try to get you to buy the book and read it. The book is 91,000 words, so there's a lot of information in there. From the beginning, once Frank got vouched for through the Meads family in Provincetown, and once he was able to start reaching out to his previous contacts, he did have law enforcement that helped him out. The thing was, they wanted to be behind the scenes. They did not want to be named. They even specifically told Frank, do not say who I am, because it could jeopardize their jobs or if they were retired, their pensions. In the book, you will find three of them, and they have the very fitting detective movie type names of agents X, Y, and Z. It's like something out of a James Bond movie. And I'll be honest with you, to this day, I only know the true identity of one of those. It's mainly out of respect to Frank and his sources, but agent X was first, Y came second, and Z was the third. And I can tell you, Agent Z is the one who reached out to Frank after the Lady of the Dunes was identified to congratulate him and say that the documentary and his hard work helped to push that identification. And that's where you can choose to believe what you want, but according to Agent Z, in their mind, Frank was at least partially responsible for Ruth Marie Terry being identified. Briefly, in part two of this series, I talked about Haddon Clark, the convicted serial killer who currently is in prison, likely for life, down in Maryland, and how Frank had ended up reaching out to him, writing letters, trying to get his information about the Lady of the Dunes. I have in my possession all of the letters. I believe it's seven different letters. And Frank was warned that Haddon Clark likes to mess with people, so he was asking for Tom Brady's autograph, postcards. His story was changing. In some letters, he was the killer. In other letters, he was there. In other letters, he wasn't there but knew who it was. In the final letter, in the final paragraph of that letter, Haddon Clark just brings up another cold case, totally unprompted. So the 1973 disappearance of two teenagers, Bonnie Bickwit and Mitchell Weiser, and he brings up the fact that he was probably one of the last people to see Bonnie alive because he worked at a camp well-met in upstate New York. Frank said he must have just glazed over and not even noticed that because when I read it, because I transcribed all these letters into the book, 
But when I read it, I reached out to Frank. I said, he's maybe not implicating himself in their disappearance, but he's definitely a person of interest. So I had to reach out to, I think it was Sullivan County in New York and the people that run a website dedicated to finding Bonnie and Mitchell and tell them about this. Thus far, nothing has come of it, but still, it's one of many times that I said I felt like I was living in a movie where I'm reaching out to a sheriff's department with potential information about a missing persons case. And then there's the whole debacle of going onto the property behind Haddon Clark's grandparents' house in Wellfleet. Haddon had said that he had buried a diary on the property back there in the woods and that it was in a sealed container, sort of like what you would put your money in at the bank when you do the drive through And he gave us vague clues and said, if you go out there and find it, it's got more information about what I was up to back in the early 70s. So I went with Frank, one of Frank's cameramen, and a couple of metal detector guys out on the property. We went to Haddon's grandparents' house because it's owned by different people now. And we actually went there and just let asked for permission. So we didn't just go. But that was a fascinating day. It was Halloween. And incredibly, another one of those we're living in a movie type moments. Look up the story of the man who said he was swallowed by a humpback whale, a Wellfleet guy. His story is unbelievable. And while we were out there looking for this diary, the guy shows up. He says, I'm the whale guy just out of nowhere. Like, what are the odds? Granted, he lived right near there. It wasn't just like he teleported in. But there were plenty of times working on this book where things would happen that I felt were just destiny, that were perfect segments, scenes in the book. When we were working on the documentary on the book, we all had our own favorites as far as who we were hoping the Lady of the Dunes really would be. This was based around the composites. So Agent Z reached out to Frank and told him to watch this movie, and he sent him a link. And the movie ended up being a softcore adult film from 1970 named Judy. It was filmed in the Chestnut Hill section of Boston, and it seems like most of, if not all, of the actresses in it worked in the combat zone. But there's one named Lee Sherry, or at least that was her stage name. And she played a woman named Regina Fairchild. And she looked different than all the rest. Like she didn't fit. And there are still images from her. If you go to the IMDB page and look up Judy, there's images from the movie that Frank put up there. But Lee Sherry looked an awful lot like some of the composites of the Lady of the Dunes. And even though there is a 10-year roughly 10-year section of Ruth Marie Terry's life that is unaccounted for right now, I find it highly, highly unlikely that she was Lee Sherry because they don't look the same. They don't seem to be the same age. But some of these closed doors actually open different avenues. Just because Lee Sherry is not the Lady of the Dunes, the Judy movie is fascinating because most of the people associated with it either have no other film credits or you can't find any information about them. Sure, maybe they were embarrassed from the movie, from making the movie, but it's like every single one, there's no information on them. That's just something to think about. In the book, there's a lot more about 
the dealings with the different mediums, specifically Stephen the medium and Susan the Cape Cod happy medium and Joe Petrie. The first time I met Stephen, we went to St. Peter's Cemetery in Provincetown and I shot a video of him communicating with the Lady of the Dunes standing beside her grave. And he mentioned the Lady of the Dunes said she really liked the person that was working the camera and that was me, so I was just over the moon. What I missed was what he started talking about after. He started mentioning a name, Mary, Marie. And then he mentioned Rose. He kept saying Rose all the time. I've learned it's the hard R, where it could be Rose, but it could be something else, Ruth. So you believe what you want, think what you want, but there was a Marie and there was a hard R that came from the Lady of the Dunes to Stephen. This was many months before she was identified. This is where a lot of information that Frank and his team discovered We're waiting for these open years in Ruth Marie Terry's life to see if more of these facts are going to end up pertaining to her. Like I mentioned in part two, the table tipping where they got her birth date nearly spot on. So I'm waiting and hoping for more revelations on her life. And I'm hoping that this book, the website, the documentary helps to lead to more conversation and more information coming forward. There's the interesting fact that Frank was trying to get interviews and articles about the Lady of the Dunes case to kind of bring it back to the forefront. And he reached out to all the local papers, Boston papers, and he was either told that they didn't want to run a story or the interview actually took place, but then the reporter was told they weren't going to run the story. So it's interesting that Frank bringing this case back to life, back to the forefront, was met with resistance in so many places. The media, a lot of law enforcement, he would keep saying to me, think about that. Why do they not want this story out there? Why do they not want to just get her identified? There's a lot of other people, like I said, that weren't in the actual documentary that are people that are in the book. For being a writer and doing true crime where you're writing about real people and real events. Those that were not in the documentary, I found myself having to change their names because even though really none of these people are written about in a negative way, I don't know how many of them want to be characters in a book. So you got to change their names to make it more vague. For example, there was a former state police officer that Frank had wanted to talk to and he actually spoke with. And this person didn't really work on the Lady of the Dunes case, but they did work on the Tony Costa case. And they straight up admitted to Frank that a full reconnaissance of the Truro Woods, that wide open area, was never done. And the rumor's always been that Tony Costa, he was convicted of two murders, but it's common knowledge that he killed four. And the thing is that he could have killed as many as eight. When he was in court getting sentenced and the judge said, do you have anything else to say? And he said, yeah, keep digging. Well, this former state cop told Frank they didn't keep digging. They got enough to put Tony Costa away and they said, that's it. So what that means is there is a potential that there are bodies out in the Truro woods from 50 plus years ago out there just waiting to be discovered. 
in that area near the Pine Grove Cemetery in Truro that is just the middle of nowhere with these fire roads. People love to walk their dogs out there or mountain bike out there. You could be mere feet from a body buried underground. That part, it freaks me out, but it's fascinating. And then when you circle back to the Lady of the Dunes and where she was found out in the remote area of the province lands dunes, again, full reconnaissance. If it's if she was dumped out there, who's to say there isn't another or two more or three more? And I'm not trying to spread rumors. I'm just saying it's an interesting thought that finding Ruth Marie Terry, the Lady of the Dunes, could be only the starting point. And there will likely never be a full reconnaissance of those woods, of those dunes, because there's more pressing things that money can go towards. But it is fascinating. When Frank went to Provincetown and did a three-day shoot there, he basically set up shop inside the Provincetown Theater. People would come in and do the interviews there. He had all of his equipment and any relevant files and papers there. I think it was on the second day when he was there, Somebody dropped off the actual case file of the Lady of the Dunes murder case. And I remember Frank saying he was so paranoid because he was pretty sure he wasn't supposed to see it, that he had to call his own attorney and just say, what do I do? This was left for me. And the attorney was like, well, you didn't take it. They left it for you. So Frank was able to read the actual case file and see these other photos that aren't public knowledge and look at information that's not public knowledge, which then helped to influence his opinions, which then when I ask certain questions, it influences the book because he's seen things that others haven't seen. I feel pretty confident in saying that any other YouTube video documentary that's been out there about the Lady of the Dunes, they have not had access to the actual case file. Frank said he had an idea of who left it for him, and when he returned it to that person, they didn't question it, so it kind of cemented that they were the one that left the case file for him. There are lots of potential suspects talked about. Some names, there are people that are still alive in Provincetown, others that had passed on. When Frank spoke with longtime locals and people that had worked at the Crown and Anchor, They all had opinions, which is why I had to change their names, kind of make vague the names of suspects they talked about. That's been my biggest fear with writing this book is the potential of implicating someone or naming names. So I'm trying to be very cautious. And Frank always jokes, well, you're writing it about me and my experiences and my notes. So you're kind of safe. But I also don't want to get him in trouble. I don't want to be irresponsible as a writer. And it's always good to leave an air of mystery. Instead of saying this person with their real name thinks this person with their real name killed the Lady of the Dunes, it's better to say person A thinks this person so that it's you're just safe. I did a lot of research into true crime writing, how much you can say and keep yourself safe from any litigation. And also how much of the story you can tweak with it still being nonfiction. Not making things up, but taking little kernels and kind of stretching them out a little bit, creating a little more drama and intrigue. But the bottom line is I kept the book as close to factually accurate as possible. 
True crime is a different animal than anything I've ever written. I've done travel guides, history books. I wrote fiction novels when I was younger that are on Amazon's Kindle store. But true crime is different because you have facts that you can find and you can use in your story. But the thing with the facts is other people can find them too. So if you're wrong, people can find out you're wrong. But I was lucky being able to pick Frank's brain so much. At times, I would write him two dozen emails in a week just trying to get as much of the detail so that when you listening to this, pick up this book and read it, you can be there. You can feel what it was like for Frank to do this documentary, but you can also put yourself in the position of those who were living in Provincetown in the 70s. You can get an idea of what it might have been like for the Lady of the Dunes, Ruth Marie Terry. You'll get a look into Tony Costa and his victims based around Sidney Monzon. But it comes down to Frank's perseverance. He had the feeling from the beginning that this was a very important project he was working on. He wanted to give the Lady of the Dunes her name. Whether or not he or the documentary or the book will ever get any shred of credit for helping to push it along, maybe, but it's probably doubtful. Because why would big-time law enforcement want to say that some small-time filmmaker and small-time Cape Cod author helped to kind of light a fire? And that's fine, because I think the people that watch the documentary will see the effort, see the intentions, and see the end result and appreciate all of Frank's hard work. And then you can read the book and get even more detail and see my intentions and my hard work. I feel that this book about the documentary could actually make its way into a film itself, complete with flashbacks to the 60s and 70s. Even to this day, as I'm recording this podcast miniseries, the book is not totally done. And that's due to the fact that all the time, new revelations keep coming out. This was the fact, especially over the last summer, where Frank was done with the documentary, but he wasn't done with trying to help solve the case. So he was always making phone calls, getting new information, and that information kept getting funneled to me. I think the book had three different endings where it wasn't the ending, but now it ends with her being identified, Ruth Marie Terry which is the perfect ending for this book to actually have resolution. So, you know, you know, going into this book that the lady of the dunes is identified. So there is no getting to the end and saying, Oh, we need to solve this case. Sure. We need concrete proof of who the killer or killers was. And I'll get more into that in part four. But I think it gives a nice little bow, a nice, I guess, hap as happy an ending as you could get that she's been identified finally, knowing that her family has resolution. Because we would do showings of the documentary and do Q&As after, and all the questions would be, who do you think she was or who do you think her killer was? And we could say who we thought, but there was no facts behind it. But as we wrap up part three of this mini-series on the Lady of the Dunes, I'll just reiterate that the importance of this story and my belief in this project is strong, and it's evident by the book, by the website that I've created, by the Kickstarter campaign that I've put together to get this book printed and published, because this story needs to be told, it needs to be read by all of you out there, 
it's been one of the most enduring murder mysteries of the last 50 years. And now there's finally a name, but the story's not over. And there's so much more than what has been presented. And there's so much more than what I've told you in the documentary and in the book in this podcast. Because you got to be smart and leave a little bit for people to wonder about. So I hope you'll come back and listen to part four of the four-part miniseries. This is going to be the new revelations. When Ruth Marie Terry was identified, the information that's come from that, where I was when I heard about it, where Frank was when he heard about it, things that he and I have researched since then, and what it means for the documentary for the book going forward. I mean, I kind of already told you it gives a resolution to the book, but there's a lot more. So if you're at theladyofthedunes.com and haven't listened to the other parts of the podcast, go and check that out. Watch the documentary. All the links are here on the site. And if the timing is still relevant, donate to the Kickstarter campaign. It's basically acting as a pre-order for the book. So any donation is like you're ordering the book. So then when I print it, I can ship it out to you. Because the end game is to get this sold enough that traditional publishers notice it and want to have it through their catalog. And I really believe that will happen. And that'll happen thanks to you. It'll happen thanks to the story itself. And I thank you all for tuning in, checking out the website, listening to the podcast, watching the documentary, and donating to the Kickstarter if you can. I have been Christopher Setterlin, and I will be back with you for part four of the Lady of the Dunes podcast miniseries. Welcome in, everybody, to the fourth and final part of this special Lady of the Dunes podcast miniseries. I am the host, Christopher Setterland, host of the In My Footsteps podcast and author of Searching for the Lady of the Dunes, the book to be released early in 2023. Thank you for tuning into this special miniseries where I give you as much as I can, as much as I know about the Lady of the Dunes, Ruth Marie Terry, the case, the documentary, the book, and now part four, the recent developments. This part is all about what happened from Halloween Day 2022 when the press conference was held that identified Ruth Marie Terry as the Lady of the Dunes. We're going to dive into some of those facts, how they related to myself, to Frank Durant, the producer of the Lady of the Dunes documentary, and so much more. So let's just jump right in. On Halloween Day 2022, early in the morning, I was heading to get new tires for my car. So exciting. My phone started going off and it was Frank. And he was talking about a press conference that Stephen the Medium had reached out to him to let him know that there was going to be a press conference with some important revelations about the oldest cold case in Massachusetts. And the only one that could come to mind was the Lady of the Dunes. At first, there was a little confusion about where the press conference was to be held. Was it Provincetown? Was it Barnstable County Courthouse? No, it was Boston. Because at first, I had thought about maybe trying to get to the press conference, but that was not possible. For me, as a writer, I'm all about symbolism. So I downloaded the app, the news app, so I could watch the press conference live, and I went to the beach. 
and sat by myself among the dunes. And I'll never forget that first camera zoom on the FBI poster with four different images of a woman named Ruth Marie Terry. She was the lady of the dunes. It was a little bit emotional to finally see her face when you have in your mind an image of what someone looks like and then you see their true identity. It's kind of startling. And I can remember saying out loud to myself with no one around saying hi and it's nice to finally see you. It was shocking that the case was solved, at least in the terms of the Lady of the Dunes being identified. Because we had had several screenings of the documentary throughout 2022, and there'd be Q&As after some of them. We had people asking Frank when he thought the case might be solved, when the Lady of the Dunes might be identified. And Frank would say every time the law enforcement has everything they need to solve this. And he actually said he thought they could solve it by the end of 2022. And lo and behold, they did. It was early this year, January 2022, when Frank and I and another person, another podcaster had talked to the local police about whether they could release anything from the case file to us sort of Freedom of Information Act, etc. This was when the police let Frank know that they were still actively working on the case, which kind of drove home the point that just because their work isn't known publicly doesn't mean there's not work going on. And law enforcement had basically let us know that we could pay them for the service of having people look through their records about the Lady of the Dunes case but that they couldn't guarantee that there was anything they could share with us. And I ended up telling Frank, let's not spend our money on what would basically be a charitable donation to the police because I didn't see us getting anything from them. So we politely passed back in January. I can say after working on the book for about 16 months at the time of the identification of Ruth Marie Terry, being so deeply connected to the case through the book, through the documentary, and through growing up on Cape Cod, there was this teensy-tiny bit of validation. Because I've only done a small part. Frank is the one that deserves all the credit for putting together the documentary, finding the people to interview, doing the research, busting through roadblocks to get such a great movie out there. That's why I say I, I have a little bit of validation. Because my... Goal, just like Frank's goal, was to give the Lady of the Dunes her name back. I get this little hair strand worth of validation. Frank gets a lot more. And law enforcement will never share this. But Frank had a few of his sources, those that were connected to law enforcement, that reached out to him on Halloween to congratulate him. Because whether it was the documentary itself or Frank kind of sniffing around asking questions of the right people, these sources told Frank that he had at least some influence on pushing this forward to get this identification out there. But Frank and I have joked, law enforcement's not going to give any credit to a small filmmaker, small author. But hopefully you out there, if you watch the documentary, if you read the book, you'll see that you can't give out congratulations without having Frank in the, at least in the back of the room. What about the identification itself? Ruth Marie Terry. 
she differed from what my vision of the Lady of the Dunes was, her backstory, at least a little bit. She was born in Whitwell, Tennessee, which is part of the greater Chattanooga area. Very small town, less than 4,000 people. Stephen the Medium, in his note, and you can read more of this in the book, he had mentioned the Lady of the Dunes said to him that she was born in the Mid-Atlantic area. So I don't know how far you would consider Mid-Atlantic if Tennessee is part of it. She was also 37 at the time of her death. I had always assumed she was a college-age student, early 20s. She had a big family that was looking for her. So this was not just a girl that had gone missing and been murdered and nobody had ever even looked for her. Even up until this year, Ruth Marie Terry's family was looking for her. And I guess that makes me feel good knowing that she had a caring family. My big thing that I found out that shocked me was that she's a mother and she was a wife. It's hearing these things where the human element comes back into it, where this isn't a board game that you're trying to solve a murder. It's a real person with a real family. And knowing that her family now finally has the closure after almost 50 years, you can't put a price tag on that. I've gone to Ruth Marie Terry's grave a few times since she was identified. And each time I go there to St. Peter's Cemetery in Provincetown, her grave has something new on it. There was a stone with Ruth Marie Terry engraved in it. And when I went there just the other day, she now has a sign with her name and photo. So her being older and having a family that was looking for her, those were ways that she differed from what I thought. But a way that she kind of fits to what people had thought of the Lady of the Dunes is her transient nature, I guess. That sounds like a bad word. I don't mean it that way. She moved around a lot. She's got, besides Tennessee, connections to California, Michigan, obviously Massachusetts. She's got connections to Nevada because her final marriage was February 1974 and it was in Reno, Nevada. So this leaves large gaps in Ruth Marie Terry's life that have yet to be filled in. And this is where some of the other names that were brought up by the mediums in the documentary and in the book could still be in play. Just because her name wasn't Helen or Morgan or Anna doesn't mean that she couldn't have had a nickname. And we don't even know what she did for work, basically, through her life. These are all things that are still in play. And naturally, selfishly, I want more of those details to be true because those are what I put in the book. So there was the initial shock. The Lady of the Dunes was identified as Ruth Marie Terry from Whitwell, Tennessee. Naturally, then with half of the puzzle solved, it turned to how she ended up dead in the dunes in Provincetown. In February 1974, Ruth Marie Terry was married to a man named Guy Moldovan. If you Google him and look at his photos, he definitely looks like someone that's a less than savory character. I'll just say it at that. And he had a very checkered past, including other dealings with murder. This included his arrest in 1960 for the murder of his wife and stepdaughter. Police at the time said bits of human remains were found in a new septic tank at the home in Seattle. Guy Moldovan was 
known as an antiques dealer, and that obviously sounds like a front for something else, something more devious, like Mafia saying they're in waste management. Guy Moldovan, as of this recording, is seen as the primary suspect, although it's not known as to whether he actually did the murder or if he had someone else do it. Guy Moldovan has connections to Provincetown, specifically through his father, Albert. In the 1940s into the 50s, Albert Moldovan owned a lot of real estate in Provincetown around the Bradford Street area. So I don't know if Guy Moldovan ever lived on Cape Cod in Provincetown, but he had to have had connections there. And if you saw the documentary or if you read the book, if you're listening to this in the future you know that there was sort of a pipeline between the Boston Mafia organized crime and Provincetown. There was drug running out in the dunes at Race Point because there is nobody out there. The Crown and Anchor on Commercial Street was a hotbed for criminals like Whitey Bulger. So it's not much of a leap to think that Guy Moldovan didn't want to get his hands dirty because of his old murder charges. So he hired someone else to kill Ruth Marie Terry and possibly drive her out into the dunes and leave her there. I feel that Guy Moldovan had connections because despite being seen as a suspect in the death of his wife and her daughter, homicide charges were never filed against him. After Moldovan married Ruth Marie Terry in February 1974, they found their way to Cape Cod. Interestingly, Moldovan obviously had a number of aliases, Raul Guy Rockwell, Guy Moldovan Rockwell, but Ruth Marie Terry also had aliases, Terry Marie Vizina, Terry M. Vizina, and Terry Shannon. We know she was married twice for sure, but that Vizina last name, V-I-Z-I-N-A, Frank and I have been trying to figure out if that is a middle husband, a second one kind of wedged in there. And that's where this 10-year gap in her life comes into play. A lot can happen then where you start to wonder, what did she do in California, in Michigan? What did she do for work? Who did she know? Because even though she was born in Tennessee, at the age of 20, she married, I think it would have been her high school sweetheart, Billy Ray Smith. And it seems like Ruth left Tennessee for good right after that. So what did she do? Well, according to some in her family, they had seen Ruth in the summer of 74 with Guy Moldovan in Provincetown. And they described the vehicle they were driving in as either a Jeepster or the Volkswagen thing. Essentially, think about a larger dune buggy, basically something that could carry a body out into the sand without too much trouble. So it's not sure if Guy Moldovan rented it and was out there or if he owned it. But as you've heard me say in the previous parts of this podcast series, Mildred Champlin, who she and her husband own a dune shack out there and they've owned it for over 50 years, said that you need to have certain skills and knowledge of those roads to drive out there. Otherwise, you're going to get stuck. So did Guy Moldovan hire somebody who had knowledge of the roads, maybe a local who was of low moral character, maybe a criminal, to dispose of Ruth Marie in an area that they knew she wouldn't be found right away? 
And did Guy Maldivan know people in Provincetown thanks to his father having all those real estate connections in the 40s and 50s? After Ruth Marie disappeared, Guy Maldivan told people that she sold all of her belongings and ran off with the Jim Jones cult and eventually ended up dead in Jonestown. Obviously, that is not the truth, but why did he come up with that story? It's because obviously he was involved in his wife's murder and then the cover-up after. When it comes to a case that's almost 50 years old, resolution is often hard. Because we could say that we believe Guy Muldovan is the prime suspect in Ruth Marie Terry's murder, but he's been dead for over 20 years. So it is highly possible that people involved are also dead. Although that's not for sure. At the press conference on Halloween, they said young people that could have been involved at the time, even in their early 20s, they would be in their mid-70s now. So it just makes finding those suspects a little harder. I find it fascinating that despite the Lady of the Dunes being identified, there's still so much that's left unknown. I mentioned earlier that Ruth Marie Terry was a wife and mother. She has a son, and Frank has actually spoken with him several times. You can imagine he's overwhelmed. And I'm not going to share much of his story, his identification, none of that out of respect. But I sent him a copy of my book, Manuscript. Frank sent him the documentary so that he could see it and kind of know what our intentions were, our motivations, and that we feel we did right by his mother. Our hope is to eventually meet him face to face. And in a perfect world, I would love him to write a little passage for the book. Just his thoughts on what it means that his mother was the famous lady of the dunes. I can't imagine having all of that dumped on you. And speaking of the book, this all circles back to the fact that I've now had to rewrite the book again. Not so much the meat of the book, but the beginning and the end. Since it is based around the timeline of Frank and the documentary and all of his work, I was never going to go back into the book and change things to make it fit the current narrative. For example, I wouldn't go back into the book and have one of the mediums say my name is Ruth Marie because that's not reality. And I've got a certain amount of integrity in my work that I wouldn't do that. I want people to know when they read the book that it's faithful to reality, what actually happened. When it says true crime, I want it to be true. That's why I bring up the 10-year gap in Ruth Marie Terry's life. Because there's still a chance that some of this information that's in the book ends up being validated. So an interesting sidetrack as far as this whole identification of Ruth Marie Terry goes is based around the other potential identifications of the Lady of the Dunes before Ruth Marie Terry was known. Who is Anne Dolce? Why was her name written on this letter, this piece of evidence that Provincetown Police Chief James Meese had in his possession and thought was important enough to keep. Frank believed and still believes that Ann Dolce is somehow connected to the Lady of the Dunes case. What happened to Lee Sherry? Those of you that heard part three of this podcast series know that there was a softcore pornographic film titled Judy, and the lead actress was named Lee Sherry. And she looked different from all of the other women in the movie. 
like she didn't belong. And she was the one that I focused on, that I wanted to be the Lady of the Dunes. It was more of a romanticized college-age girl, came to Boston, maybe got into films like that to help her pay for her tuition. But just based on photos, it's not her. She is not Ruth Marie Terry. But I've never been able to find anything about her. It's like she's a ghost. So what happened to Lee Sherry? Who was she? It may be totally insignificant to 99.9% of people listening to this, but to me, that's my white whale. I'd love to know who she was. And then there's Rory Jean Kessinger, who was originally thought to be the Lady of the Dunes because when she escaped from prison and she was never seen again, the story, the rumor and innuendo was that she was obviously as a criminal messing around with the wrong people and she was then silenced. But Ruth Marie Terry's body was exhumed three times and Rory Jean Kessinger was never connected to her. So we circle back around. What happened to her? Is she still alive? She would be in her mid-70s now. Is it possible that she has eluded capture for 50 years? Or is it possible that Rory Jean Kessinger met a similar fate to the Lady of the Dunes, just not in Provincetown? Where one thing gets answered, so many other questions pop up. Who is Helen Dennison? During a table tipping with Susan and Joe, the mediums, they came up with her name. Helen Dennison, and some of her backstory. Hell, when they gave her birth date, they gave her birth date as September 6th. Ruth Marie Terry's birth date was September 8th. That's so close. So is Helen Dennison another alias? Ann Dolce? Lee Sherry? It's like the case has been solved, but it's not over as far as myself and Frank and the book and the documentary and all of the leads that we found. I would love to tie all of those up so that people don't read the book or watch the documentary and kind of at the end there's a finger pointing saying, now you figure it out. We were always worried that that was what it was going to be. We were going to give all we knew and there'd be no resolution. So it would be up to the viewer, the reader to kind of keep digging. So in a way, it's great that this case got solved before my book is published because I can give people the resolution. The very first words in the book are Ruth Marie Terry. And that is such a great feeling to be able to share that with readers. And I wish with this final part of the podcast series that I could give you more concrete information. But there are still things we don't know. And a lot of it would just be speculation. And that doesn't take a lot of skill to speculate. So believe me, it's not that I'm hiding information I have to keep it in the book. Because I wouldn't have put together this whole big podcast otherwise. Hopefully 2023 will see the full resolution with the naming of her killers, if there were any accomplices. Go to YouTube and watch my video called Goodbye Lady of the Dunes. As only a few weeks ago before recording this, I went out to the actual site where Ruth Marie Terry was found with Frank. There are very, very few people who know the real drop site. Frank had it confirmed by three separate sources who know it. And although I shoot video and interview Frank going out there, I went out of my way to not show people how to get there out of respect for the people that have dune shacks out there, but also for Frank, who his motivation was always not to exploit the lady of the dunes. 
So me putting a video out there saying, here's how you get to where she was found, that's kind of going against what his wishes are. And out of respect for Frank, I'm not going to do that. All I can say is it's not a random spot. Whoever put her out there knew exactly where to put her. They had intimate knowledge of those dunes, whether they had rented dune shacks before, whether they were locals that just went out there all the time. They knew where to put her so that she would be found eventually, but not right away. And it's very creepy and somber to stand there, to know that so few people have been to that spot or at least been there knowing what happened there. So to have that knowledge and be there, it was just kind of a little overwhelming. And that's what brings it back around all the way to the human side. Even before she was identified, I had said the Lady of the Dunes was a real person. She had a real name, a real backstory, a hometown, family, friends, and that at the very least, she deserved her name, her family deserved closure, and that all has come. That resolution has come. This experience of working on this book alongside Frank with the documentary has been one of the most fulfilling of my life. I have seven published books, 100 podcast episodes, more than a couple of hundred articles in different publications in my blog, countless dozens of videos on YouTube, and nothing tops this. The chance to be associated with the Lady of the Dunes case and to be actively working on a book when the case was resolved, it's like it was destiny. I got to meet so many great people, ones that worked on the documentary with Frank, people like Susan, the Cape Cod Happy Medium, and Stephen, the Medium, and Elix, Liza Rodman. I had these great adventures searching for Haddon Clark's diary and behind his grandparents' property, getting to actually stand where the Lady of the Dunes, Ruth Marie Terry, was found when so very few have ever done that, getting the chance to share my manuscript with Ruth Marie Terry's son so he could see my work and hopefully understand that I was trying to do right by his mother. These are things even two years ago I wouldn't have believed. I grew up with the Lady of the Dunes case on Cape Cod. I never would have thought I'd have been associated with it, even in such a small way. But now we come to what's going forward here as we're in 2023. My plan, as I said all along, was if a traditional publisher was not interested in the book at this time, I was going to crowdfund and get a short run of this book published so that people can read it and I can build an audience to make the book undeniable that publishers have to listen. It's a very important, impactful true crime case. How often does a 50-year-old true crime case get solved? It's not that often. And that's why I put my money where my mouth is with purchasing the ladyofthedunes.com, building the website, crowdfunding the book, going through the process of getting a book self-published. I'm doing right by Ruth Marie Terry, and I'm doing right by Frank, who put his confidence in me to write the book based around his documentary. We had said we wanted to give the Lady of the Dunes her name back. She now has that name, Ruth Marie Terry. The next hope is to solve what happened to her that night that ended up with her left in the dunes in Provincetown. 
it's important to me that this case doesn't just fade away. That's why there's this website with everything you could possibly want about this case. It's a very well-known case, and I'll keep updating it with news as it comes out so that even though the documentary's done, the book is done, this podcast series is done, the website I will keep updating, and hopefully we will be able to put the final pieces of the puzzle of the case together. But thank you all for tuning in to part four of this Lady of the Dunes miniseries podcast. If you haven't already, go and check out my podcast, the In My Footsteps podcast at Buzzsprout and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Find me all over social media, YouTube. There aren't too many Christopher Setterlins, so I'm easy to find. And thank you to everybody who helped me along the way with the book. Thank you to Frank for putting his confidence in me. I hope I've done everyone proud. Go and check out the documentary. Depending on when you're listening to this, I'll have more information about crowdfunding the book or it's going on or it's already happened. Who knows? But read the book if it's available to you. And to the Lady of the Dunes, Ruth Marie Terry, may you now rest in peace. And we all associated with the documentary and the book hope that we did right by you.